We're in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Really, we're going to go, hopefully, Lord willing, through the end of this paragraph. I called this and I wrote it on the board. I'm not going to write it again. If you were here last week or Glenn sent out the, the, the copy of it. But I call these the virtues of the Christian life. There are, uh, in verses 9 through 16, there are 12 virtues that we, uh, that we are to exercise in relation to believers. And then the remaining verses, 17 through the end of the, of the paragraph, the end of the chapter 21, the virtues we exhibit toward unbelievers. And that's much shorter, and we'll get to that in just a minute. We're right in the middle of our, uh, of our itemization of these virtues in verse 13. Uh, yes, verse 13, I think. Or, or, you did 12. In the middle of 12? Oh, okay. constant prayer. Okay. Well, virtue number six is really, it's grouping three things together because they're all tied. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That's all one virtue, and it flows out of hope. And I, I think we talked a lot about hope last week, so I don't, I don't know if I'm going to go through all that again. But I studied under a man who defined hope as expectancy with desire. And the hope, the hope, rejoice in hope, is the promises Jesus has made to us. Our hope is all wrapped around his fundamental promise. I'm going back to the Father, but I'm coming back for you. John 14 uh, the first couple of verses is a good place to start with that. Now, because that's true, which hope is a future-oriented word, that's, that's a virtue that gets us to focus on the future. Therefore, the present, we can be patient in tribulation. You sometimes see that, that term that's translated tribulation, trial. And remember, because of our hope, we understand that in this life, God is growing us, transforming us, into the image of his son. And therefore, trials are one of the ways in which he does that. And because we understand that, and this is, I think, where we dropped off last week, constant in prayer. That's very similar to the language that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. And I know we talked about that. That's that, that constant, ongoing conversation we have with the Lord. And so the hope leads to a lifestyle of patience and prayer because our, our focus is on the future and that future focus affects present behavior and that how we look at trials and how we look at prayer is related to that hope. So I, I kind of think we're done with that <laughs> unless you have a question. Let me move then to the seventh virtue, which is in verse 13, the first part of verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Now, I, that's, I read from the FD translation. There's not any real better way to translate that. But this is focusing on what we do with our financial resources. And the, the idea of contribute to the needs of the saints is a generosity in helping meet the needs of other believers. Remember, these virtues are related, these, these virtues are related to believers, how we relate to the believers, how we manifest the Holy Spirit's work on our life with other believers. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I don't know if I need to talk much about that because it's kind of self-evident, but many churches have, I mean, our church does, you have a benevolence fund. And uh, my wife and I contribute to that periodically, and it goes in, and then as people have needs, 
were able to help meet those needs through that fund because there's always some accountability there and so on. In other ways, they're just generosity with people that are other believers. One of the things that is often a part of that is as you are ministered to, as you experience the blessing of God, then you share that with other people. And I mean, the, the, the Bible is not rigid on this. The Bible isn't, I don't even think the Bible assigns a numerical number to this. Tithing is very definitely a part of the Old Testament law. It's hard to really show that that is a commandment for the New Testament, the New Covenant. What is in the New Testament is generosity and proportionate giving. As God blesses you, you then bless others. You put your support ministries as God blesses. So that's that's very much the idea. But the, the whole thought of generosity, of the whole thought of this virtue of generosity in the material blessing of God, but it's with the saints. It's not supporting the Philadelphia Phillies Foundation, <laughs> as, as good as that is to do. It's, it's focusing on the saints, believers, and it's supporting the believers, the needs of the believers. I think we, I mentioned this last week because I know this church here at Christ Community. That generosity extends in a lot of different ways, helping single mothers with needs, oil changes for the car, tire changes, things like that. I don't know if they still do that thing, but lots of ways in which you can help meet the needs of saints. Uh, I'm going to go down a bunny trail there, but I don't think I'm going to do that. Let's go to the uh, eighth one. Seek to show hospitality. I'm separating those two because they're two different virtues. And um, I think we need to talk about that for a little bit. Because today, that isn't as self-evident as it was in the early church. Let me explain what I mean. In the early church... In the early church, when people traveled, and, and you know they didn't go from one country to another, you might travel to the next village or something like that. But for, for the most part, traveling was a very dangerous thing, a very difficult thing to do. So one of the things that developed with Christians was you would open your house to those who were traveling. And that's called hospitality, obviously. But hospitality was an absolute essential in the ancient world. And the church, the churches of the early first cent, couple centuries became, became widespread in their understanding, if you have a place to stay, if you don't have a place to stay, people who are in these churches, they will open their homes. And that hospitality, particularly for believers, but hospitality was a major virtue in the ancient world. It, it was in the, because there weren't hotels or motels or anything, there were inns. I-N-N-S, there were inns, but they were usually not really lovely rooms. You might sleep in a hayloft, or you might sleep with the animals just to get out of the cold or get out of the weather or whatever. There were some places for the very wealthy, but so hospitality was huge. It's one of spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12. Hospitality is a spiritual gift. I don't want you to answer this, please. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. But do any of you have the gift of hospitality? One of the men in our church, he and his wife, without question, have that gift of hospitality. They are constantly having people into their home, constantly sharing meals and even having people over to their home, even for a weekend. That's hospitality. Helping people feel comfortable, 
helping people to share meals together and so on, because that kind of fellowship is kind of unique. Because today, hospitality for the typical American is you go down to the bar, or you go to the to the restaurants where you get uh, served and so on, where you have the intimacy of Christian fellowship, which is the byproduct of hospitality. Got it? That's not a difficult one. Number nine. Now, here in this one, in the ninth virtue, in the tenth virtue, in the eleventh virtue, Paul is quoting Jesus. So as he surfaces these virtues, he's quoting the Lord Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount. So this virtue in my numbering would be virtue number nine is so counterintuitive. It goes against everything in our human nature. Shoot those who persecute you. Stab those who curse you. Excuse me? Punch those out who curse you. That's how our culture lives, for the most part. I'm, I'm trying to be a little humorous, but also, I mean, generally speaking, isn't that true? The idea is somebody's persecuting you, somebody's cursing you, you practice talionic justice and retaliate, and you have a cursing battle. I mean, this is really being humorous, but what, what's behind it? Yeah, that's right. You have a the, the uh, school shooting uh, the accused was uh, faced by all, all of the parents and the behemoths. I saw that. They just, it was profound. And I mean, it was just, I, I said, where, where's Christ in this? Mm. These people were just spewing mm. out behemoths. It was just almost hard to watch. It was horrible. What's behind it? Because, again, I, I, I reiterate, the Apostle Paul is quoting Jesus here. This isn't just his apostolic authority as an apostle of Jesus. He is quoting Jesus. So I, I want to talk a little bit about this, because I think this is one of the most difficult virtues for us to exhibit as Christians. Bless those who persecute, because in the ancient world, as you know, in the ancient world, the persecution of the church, of believers, as you get further into the first century and then get into the second century, and when you get into the third century, <coughs> the Roman Empire is sponsoring the persecution, state-sponsored persecution, so it just intensifies. So this had, this had meaning in the first century and second century that's un, almost unimaginable for you and me, because we're not being persecuted. I mean, the state is not taking out of us and throwing us in jail and martyring us and executing us and that kind of thing. No, I don't think we are. So, what's behind all this? Well, we live in a culture that pushes that. I mean, our culture just fans discord. That's exactly right. And hatred and dysfunction in, in relationships. Don't get mad, get even. 
Yeah. I mean, you know. I saw, I saw that. I haven't seen that in years. I saw that on a bumper sticker the other day. And I used to see those somewhat frequently, but I hadn't seen it for a long time. But on a bumper sticker, I don't get mad, I get even. <coughs> so it's not a short term thing. It's been long, long. It's, wouldn't you, you know, not to speak to Bill, but really to all of you in general, wouldn't you agree that? This is part of the human condition. Our initial default response is immediately defensive, and it's immediately, I, I'm going to get back at you. It's immediately retaliation. It's immediately vengeance. It's immediately, so Jesus is saying, bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Who is the model for that? Who lived that? Somebody, I've heard somebody saying it. Jesus, Jesus did. did. Jesus did. I mean, he's on the cross, or even earlier when he's being mocked, right before he's scourged by the Roman officers and the execution squad and all that stuff. And he's silent. He doesn't. I mean, you know, he's God. He could have called down angels. He could have called down fire. He could have annihilated these guys. So... Another way to think about this, <clears throat> your God, I know this is hard to imagine, but pretend just for a moment. Your God, you've created the human race, you've given the human race what they need, the sun to shine and produce the, the crops, the rain that comes to nurture the crops. You provide all of the food, you provide all of the safety and security, the way that planet Earth is created just at the right angle. You've read about all that. And what do your image bearers do? Curse you. Want nothing to do with you. That they hurl your name. They, they defy you in everything. And what does God do? Continues to bless. The Bible calls this his common grace. So how is God? God is not saying, okay, you're going to do that to me? You're done. You're over. And, you know, people who are cursing him all the way live for 80, 90 years, cursing him every day of their life, God continues. So when Jesus says this, and this is so counterintuitive to the human condition, you come to faith in the Lord Jesus. This is one of the virtues that you will exhibit the love I have for other human beings you will exhibit the same love. When they persecute you, bless. When they curse you, bless. Do you want to do that? I don't want to do that. That's not my default response. So it's one of those, we're getting into these, these virtues that are, the Apostle Paul is listing. We're getting in, into areas that are very uncomfortable for us. And I'll use that word one more time. Very counterintuitive. It goes against everything of the human condition. But God models this for us. And if we're being transformed into the image of his son, then this is an area. My wife is much better at this than I am. She really is. She's much better. I'm, well, I'll be very transparent. I'm driving on the interstate with her. 
And a, a young guy cuts me off in one of his, I mean, did deliberately cut me off. And, you know, I was very calm and said, oh, Lord bless you. That's not what I did. I was really, I was really upset. And Peggy said, honey, why are you wasting all that energy being upset? He's far out ahead of you. Just forget it. And it just, it drew me back. She cried. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. It's a minor little stupid thing, but I know that's all abstract to you. None of you know what I'm talking about. You've never experienced anything like that. What is it? Okay. I mean, yeah. But I mean, you know what I'm talking about in, in terms of just living life. And Paul is just saying to us, as he's really quoting Jesus, you have a different response. When people do things that hurt you, persecute, curse you, or whatever, your default response is not vengeance. Your default response is, may the Lord bless you. The source of, the source of, um, of that default human response really probably comes from the serpent transmitting, oh, yeah. transmitting um, the vengeance of the Persecution of God by Satan yeah. uh, and uh, yeah. into the human race. Well, it's just that part of that rebellion against God is, if I can put it this way, it's more theological than anything, but instead of seeing people the way God sees people, as a value and worth, he's sent his son for them, see people as your enemy because of something they do. And because they're your enemy, you've got to get rid of them. That, that attitude is very poisonous. That attitude has entered into American politics. But it's also entered into some business practices. And it's also entered into sports. And it's also entered into, my, my kids used to play baseball when they were younger and so on. My son turned 40 last week. 40? <laughs> and you know, we sort of had, a, he lives in England, we had a celebration and all that stuff. But my wife reminded me, you know, honey, if he's 40, just think of how old that makes us. <laughs> Celebrating he's old when he did 40, you know, it's a huge special request. But I can remember, I can remember in some of those games, the parents. Yeah. And I don't know what other word to use in the vengeance some of those parents were exhibiting toward another kid who did their something to their kid. <laughs> Should be an umpire. Oh, did you ump? Oh, I can't imagine being an umpire. I can't in today's sports. Oh my goodness! And there were a couple of instances, uh, two maybe three that I can remember, particularly with Joanna because she played. Um, oh, what's it called? Well, anyway, it's kind of baseball. It's a little bit upper level. She had sixty games one summer, and it was awful our schedule but anyway it was much more competitive much higher level and i remember one of those games one the up threw a parent out you know not the coach not that threw a parent out and i remember thinking does that come have the authority to do that you know what if the parent refuses to do it what are you going to do call the police but anyway yes is that what you do oh i just can't it's it's really something and you know you always reflect on that what is that modeling for the children if you watch that unfold, it's, it's really something. Well, this is too convicting. Let's move on to the next one. Verse 15 is number 10. And the way I'm itemizing the virtues, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. You know, the best word, it's an English word, but the best word for this is empathy. 
Isn't it? It's the virtue of empathy. When someone is experiencing joy over something, you know, the birth of a child, a successful promotion in their job, or whatever it would, you're, you're rejoicing with them. To the other side of the human spectrum, weep, you know, grief over the loss of someone you love or whatever, you weep with them. That's empathy. That capacity to empathize with people in the church, in, in, I don't mean the, the, our churches today, but the church universal, the church should model that because we are the body of Christ. And when someone is really rejoicing, we rejoice with them. When someone is, is weeping, grieving, we grieve with them. Uh, there are, our church has one and, and a lot of churches, they have like, like a grieving, caring committee or, or ministry, it's a better way to call it, grieving or caring ministry, which has very specific things they do to help families that are grieving. The loss of, of a child or loss of a parent or the even you know a very severe cancer issue and all that goes with, with all that occurs with chemo and everything like you're grieving and caring. That's what this is about, empathy. And then number 11, again, that's not difficult. Live in harmony with one another. That's number 11 in the way I'm, I'm itemizing it. <laughs> Do not be haughty, but associate with the, the lowly. That's, that's number 12. So let me just focus on number 11. Live in harmony with one another. I don't, again, I don't think that's difficult to understand. But yet, I am seeing things that I thought I'd never see before among believers. Really in-depth disagreement and fighting with one another. And I don't mean they're duking it out. I mean really verbally hurling things at one another. Churches dividing and splitting over them. You know, over, again, I don't want to get into any of this in detail, just to use it as an illustration. The issue of COVID and wearing masks and all that stuff really divided a lot of Christians. It created a lot of divisiveness. The, I don't know, I said again, I want to get into discussion about it just to illustrate it. Some political issues today, some presidential issues today, and some of the people that are involved in presidential politics and stuff, dividing Christians. And they're almost, these kinds of things become, if I say it this way, do you know what I mean? These things almost become tests of sanctification, tests of holiness. If you don't see this political person the way I see it, you must not be a Christian. There must be something wrong with you. you know, or if, if you were a man, I remember a man said to me, I'm not going to wear a mask, I test of my freedom. And I said, well, would it be all right if I do wear a mask? You make that such a if you make that such a major issue, it's not a test of sanctification. Let's turn it into one of those issues that's in the scriptures over and over again. Issue of liberty and freedom in these non-moral areas of life. So if someone agrees to wear a mask and somebody just that's okay. Can't we agree to disagree? Can't we live in harmony with one another? Because that, whether you wear a mask, I'm using it as just an illustration. I don't want to get into that discussion. Just an illustration. Whether you wear a mask or not is not going to keep you out of heaven. That's not a salvation issue. It was left to men that it's supposed to be never had any problems. It wasn't left to men. 
It's mandated in a lot of mandated. places in the Let's, Let's just leave it on the table. I, without getting into that, I'm just, you see what I'm saying? Once it's there, you make that a test, a fellowship, and a sanctification, we shouldn't let that happen. Hey, Jim. Should not let that happen. Yeah, yes. Who's asking that question? <laughs> this is, uh, is this going back to Titus 3 9, where Paul warns about, about the foolish, foolish controversies? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because we're not talking here about issues of doctrine or theology. And again, I don't want to get into any of these details. The point is to live in harmony with one another. Let me see if you agree with this sentence. As a rhetorical question, do you believe that Christians should model the virtue of being able to agree to disagree with one another on non-moral issues? Yes. I'm not talking about the, the things that are itemized in the Ten Commandments. I'm not itemizing. That's not what I'm talking about. And it does seem to me that living in harmony with one another starts with marriage. Because our lives are a series of concentric circles. The initial concentric circle of your life is, you know, and I think all or most of you are married, or that's that's an important part. You came from a family, so you know, in that family, shouldn't we live in harmony with one another? Because the great test of that is when kids get into the disease called adolescence. That's a very significant test of that. But a husband and wife, I mean, I. I think a lot of you know what I mean. If you don't agree to disagree, your marriage isn't going to last very long because you just don't see things the same way. I don't know if I've ever told you this, uh, so good, just forgive me, but when I've been married to Peggy for 53 and a half years, but we were first married, it was amazing the issues. There were two issues. Number one was, are we going to put the cap on the toothpaste? <laughs> I'm serious, that was an issue yes. because in my family we didn't put the cap on the my father threw it away, he opened the toothpaste threw it away but in Patty's family the toothpaste was, the, the, the always screwed on the toothpaste the second issue was are we going to have the toilet seat up or down in my home the toilet seat was always up as I think about it it's just, man that's really something but it was whereas in Peggy's home well, I can tell you, in our family, for 53 and a half years, the toothpaste lid is always on. It's always screwed on. And the toilet seat, for 53 and a half years, has been down. We knew that, Jim. Yeah, you did. Now, they're just two of But you know what? You have, to, you have to live in harmony with one another in your marriage. You have to live in harmony with one another in your relationship with your children. You have to live in harmony with one another in your extended family. You have to live in harmony with one another in the church. They're the concentric circles of your life as Christians. That's what Paul's saying. Because in the unbelievers' realm, often that is not how they live. Again, that's a broad stroke statement. But so again, it's manifesting the kinds of qualities and I like to call them virtues of life that are distinguishable. They're the mark of the Christian. And then the final one, number 12, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
This is often, these virtues, the first one is love, the final one, number 12, is humility. That's often how Paul lists them. When he lists the virtues, of this is the longest one of, in any of his writings, but he, he often bookends love, number one, humility, the last one. That's what he did here. <clears throat> I don't think we need to talk about that. That's pretty self-evident. But do not be haughty. That's, that's an old English word. ESV has chosen to translate it that way. But do not be proud. Do not be arrogant. But associate with the lowly. That's, that's an interesting way to put it. Associate with the lowly is a way to deal with pride. Associating with the lowly is a way to deal with pride. To remind yourself where you are is by the grace of God. <clears throat> And it's always important to remember, Paul says this, I believe it's in 1 Timothy 5, that the fundamental sin of Satan was pride. Isaiah 14, 12, I will be like the Most High. And the core of the human rebellion against God is pride. And so that is, again, it's the virtues of the Christian life. All right. Uh, ideally, I wanted to finish these last week, but you guys had so many questions, I wasn't able to do it. So it was all your fault. Live in harmony with one another. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> kidding. We had a great discussion. We really did. Now, uh, I, I don't <coughs> I think there are any other questions or any other comments. You all with me on that? Let's move in. Yeah, oh, Chris. Just a comment. Uh, you know, in a marriage. I think the children do pick up on how that relationship oh studies done that don't relate one way or another to biblical Christianity, but the studies of the influence that parents have on their children. And children that are raised in, a, in your word was tumultuous, a tumultuous, anger, dysfunctional family situation, the odds are very high that's the way their family will be. The kids, when they have their own families and so on. Now, again, that's not a rigid law, but that's the opposite. Sociologists have studied that for, for quite a, there's a lot of longitudinal studies which show that is really true. And that's a biblical principle. That's a biblical principle. The family is the most important institution God created. It's the foundation bedrock of civilization. And that if that family unit does not function well, it's going to re just reverberate through the rest of the culture. And I don't think it takes much deep thought to see that in our country right now. The institution of the family is very dysfunctional, broad stroke statement, but very dysfunctional in America. And I think that has an impact. I, I was in higher education most of my life. 
I have never been more concerned about education than I am now. I am just, I, I, am, I am just absolutely almost terrified, just humanly speaking, because I know as an educator, and history tells me this, education, family and education, if those two institutions aren't working very well, that has enormous implications for the future of your civilization. You go out 20 years, and that, that, that's, that's why I'm so concerned about this. And I'm concerned about faith-based, Christ-centered education. Um, Bible colleges, Christian liberal arts colleges, and seminaries, there are very few of them that are not in trouble. And by that, I mean financial trouble. Because of all the exigencies of just what's happening in in our culture and the cost of things and you know the fixed cost of institutions like that and so on. When I just saw Southwestern Baptist Seminary, one of the largest Baptist seminaries in the denomination in Fort Worth, just their board is reorganizing. They are going to cut 10% of every expense seminary. That used to be one of the wealthiest, most, it's an incredible seminary. I, I lived in Dallas for, I've seen it. It's a beautiful seminary. They're in trouble financially. This is Southern Baptist Seminary. Gordon Conwell, one of the great seminaries in Massachusetts, has sold their property. They're moving their whole school. Fuller sold a major part of their seminary. I mean, those are not good signs. <laughs> and, okay, you think about that. What does that mean? Go out 20 years. Where are the leaders of the church going to come from? So what we got to do, and I'm, I'm involved in some of this with another institution, but we have to think of very creative ways to prepare the next generation of church leaders. We really we have to start thinking about that because that's a very serious issue. And so I, mean, I just throw that out. How did I get into this? Oh, I know it was Fred's fault. He's the one who raised <laughs> it. Verse 17 through 21, there are the virtues of relating to unbelievers. It's summarized in four words, love, forgiveness, mercy, not vengeance. Love, forgiveness, mercy, not vengeance. Here, Paul quotes again from Jesus. Verse 17, first verse, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. He is dealing, he, Paul, is dealing with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Jesus would say, Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Talk about something counterintuitive. You talk about something that rubs against our character and nature as humans. That's what Jesus said. So again, you know, love, forgiveness, mercy, not vengeance. What Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is vengeance should not be your default response. Love, mercy, and forgiveness should be. And that's exactly what Jesus modeled. That's exactly what God modeled.
This gets back to some of the things we talked about before. The default response of humanity is revenge. The default response of God is mercy. Isn't it? This takes away the Old Testament eye for an eye. But that's justice, Fred. That's the principle of justice. When you're dealing with criminal activity, and that's what Paul gets into in chapter 13, when there's criminal activity, vengeance is still not your motivation. What's your motivation? Justice. And the principle in the scriptures of justice is talionic justice, as Fred just quoted, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, which is summarizing the, the principle of justice. But even in government, when the state it, the state, and we'll see this in chapter 13, the state's role is to promote justice and support evil. And the promotion of the state is not vengeance. The promotion of the state, the goal of the state, the directive of the state is justice. An eye for an eye, it's the law of reparation. And so, and uh, we'll get into that in just a minute. But this is now in our personal relationship, nothing with criminal activity. Criminal activity, the state's supposed to take care of that. Again, whether it does or not, that's not the point. I want to get into that debate. But you and I are not, um, we are not to be motivated by vengeance. I don't know how else to say it. And the Lord, or Paul, develops on this. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's a great principle. Peggy, my, my, my wife quotes this a lot. If it's, as much as is it up to you, as much as it depends on you, Seek to live peaceably with all people. Now, that doesn't always work because some people aren't very nice and it's hard to live peaceably. But you're always going, Jesus will say this in in another scripture in the Sermon on the Mount. He'll always say, in your relationship, go the extra mile with people. Now, in the end, Paul doesn't quote that here, but that's just, he's, he's drawing on that. What did Jesus mean by that? Go the extra mile. What did he mean by that? You and I quote Christians. Quoted, non Christians quote. But yeah, this is an amazing thing when you see it historically. Because Judea, when it was a Roman province, a Roman soldier could say, Jew, carry my pack from that mile marker to that mile marker. Because the Roman Empire marked all of their roads with mile markers, just like we do in the interstates. But that's where it started. And whatever you were doing as a Jew, you're under occupied territory. You had to do that. And what Jesus said is you look at the guy in the eye and say, sir, in the name of the Messiah, Jesus, I'll carry it two miles. I mean, good night. Who's going to do that? But that's what Jesus is thinking. It's a hyperbolic illustration. Go the extra mile. That soldier wants you to carry your pack, his pack on a mile, you carry it two miles. And when he falls off his horse, you talk about Jesus. I'm being silly, but it's, it's that kind of, and so you, you read this, what? As much as is it up to you, be a piece of all people. A couple of years ago, I watched my neighbor put all of his recyclable cans in my recyclable bin. And I said to Peggy, what should I do about that? She quoted this verse. Does it really matter? 
Yeah, that's your room. Well, I mean, it's you know, honestly. Well, he can't do that. That's my recycling bin. But you know, it's just my default response was, "I'm going to go out and give him a tongue lashing for violating my recycling bin." I did not do that. <laughs> but my wife reminded, "As much as it's up to you, live in peace with all men." And then she gave me a mini lecture like Bill just did, that they are all end up in exactly the same place. Mine wasn't full. So why not let him put, but the only problem is his wasn't full, but I don't know why he did it. <laughs> he was backing his, his SUV out of his car. He remembered that. And he's right up against my recital. Well, I'll just put him in gym. So that's what he did. It's just those ridiculous things at life that are immediate default response is your back is arched. And you're going to do something that instead of living peaceably with all men, you're the source of confrontation. Maybe he and I would have duked it out on Cold Creek Circle where I lived. <laughs> that wouldn't have happened. But, you know, just a crazy dumb thing. So it's just, this is so hard for us. We respond differently than unbelievers. Our default response is different. That is hard. Because I don't, remember you guys, it's probably all abstract to you. You have no problem dealing with any of this stuff. <laughs> but I constantly am dealing with this kind of stuff in my own life. I mean, that's just because I don't want to respond that way. Now, I'm being a little, I'm using some exaggerated language here, but that this is really, these kinds of things are really hard. And I think men, maybe I shouldn't put it that way, but I think it's true. Men, I think, struggle with some of this more than women do. We just, we, our backs arch quickly about some of the things that you see and observe. And, and instead of saying, as much as it depends on you, live peacefully, it's up to you. Now, that doesn't, the unbeliever may not even want to do that, but. As much as it's up to you, live peaceful, all men. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 39 here. Vengeance is mine. This is God speaking. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What Jesus says, and Paul's really quoting Jesus here again, but and he's quoting the Old Testament, is something that we forget. God will take care of the fundamental issues of justice. Even if government isn't working for it, God's going to ultimately take care of this. When all things are settled at the end of time, God will mete out the justice. So we can depend on him. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Well, that's an easy thing. Okay, well, I'll just wait for you to take care of this. When I want to take my gun, I only have a little pellet gun, but take my gun and shoot somebody. Again, I'm being a little glad. Somebody saw a hand, I think. I was thinking as you were talking, especially in this environment that we live in today, that kind of potatoes is noticed. It really is. We can't do it. I mean, it's not, like you say, it's not our inclination. But God will give us the strength that that's really mm -hmm. the desire. Mm -hmm. And we'll even surprise ourselves. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think, as, and that's been certainly true in my life, as you begin 
to try to discipline yourself in dependence on God's spirit to respond this way, you find it a little bit easier the next time until something really big like guy puts all his excitement <laughs> in you. Then you're arching your back again. I'm just kidding a little bit there. All right, look at the last section. We're just about done here. Again, these just so counterintuitive. To the contrary, to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give me something to drink. So you're responding in a God-centered way. You're responding with common grace. Jesus says it this way. When the Father sends rain, it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. When the Father sends the Son, it shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. The enemies of God, he still gives them rain. The enemies of God, he still does the sunshine. Two things that are absolutely essential for life. So you, when you're hungry, the enemy's hungry, you feed him when he starts giving rain. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. He's quoting from Proverbs 25, 21 here. He's quoting a proverb, which means that you will, in a very real sense, by your virtuous activity, shame them. You'll heap burning coals in. It, it, will, be, it will be a means God could use for them to repent. When you love your neighbor, the words of Jesus, when you pray for your when you love your enemy, when you pray for your enemy, as Fred just said, this, this is not what the culture typically sees. I don't believe it. And so the governing principle is verse 21. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the cross. God so planned his rescue program for humanity by allowing his son to become a victim of evil so that he could eradicate evil and establish his good. Overcome evil with good. Nobody said amen there, but that's the governing principle. Love, forgiveness, mercy. That's how we relate to unbelievers. All right? There aren't any questions on it. Well, I want you to be convicted about this because I was studying this again on Mondays. Monday's my study day, and I said to the Lord, Lord, uh, I don't want to teach this. <laughs> because it's so it's so convicting because you just see, Lord, I just come up so short in some of these things. But that's part of our growth. That's part of the journey. It really is. Okay? It took us two weeks to get through all this, but I think it was worth it. I want to introduce Chapter 13 with this, and I'm going to go to my infamous board. So you guys online, you're going to have to give me a minute to get over here, and I'll be back. We've done some of this before. I won't go over here. God has created three primary institutions through which He does His work. 
they were created in this order. Family, state, and the church. <coughs> Each one of these institutions God has created with a certain stewardship <coughs> responsibility. So I'm looking at the stewardship responsibilities of these three institutions. Stewardship is an extremely important biblical word. Greek word for stewardship is poikonomia. We got a word economy from It's that fiduciary stewardship responsibility you have in each of those institutions. Now, because I, mean, I think this is accurate, because all of us are believers, including guys online, we understand these three institutions. But the founding was created by God in Genesis chapter 2. The passage we're going to be studying, Romans 13, and then the church. <laughs> I'm just going to put the New Testament everywhere in the New Testament. But then the, the, the stewardship responsibility in the family of the family is procreation. I'm going to use this New Testament word, but it's very much a part of Deuteronomy 6. Training of children and modeling the relationship of Christ and the church. That's in Ephesians 5.32. As we'll study here, the primary stewardship responsibility of the state is to promote justice, And thwart evil. And then the new, uh, stewardship of the New Testament church is, of course, the Great Commission. I'm not going to write this stuff. We're running out of time here. It's discipleship. The Great Commission is make disciples and to equip the saints. Put the saints for what? For service. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. Well, I really wrote a passage here, I'm sorry, but that's in Ephesians chapter 4. So you have these, and this is a real broad overview, but I hate to get the point. You have these three key, key institutions. Each one has a stewardship responsibility. The state is not to train and raise children. That's not its job. That's not its job. The state. The state is a part of promoting justice for evil is to defend the nation. That implies a military that the church doesn't raise an army. That's not the church's responsibility. You see what I'm saying? So you look at these stewardship responsibilities, and if we transition on into chapter, chapter 13, Paul wants to help us understand as believers who are part of this institution and are trying to faithfully do this as this institution, how do we relate to the state? What is our ethical obligation to this institution as believers? Because part of the tension of that is we are citizens of another kingdom, aren't we? We're citizens of Christ's kingdom. Our king is in heaven, but he promised to come back for us and establish the kingdom of God on earth. And so we have this challenge. We're really citizens of another kingdom. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, but he's talking to Pilate. 
And so Paul necessarily has to raise this issue if he's talking about what does the justified life look like? Because remember, when Paul writes this, the Roman Empire is everywhere. So in effect, he's asking the first century Christian, what's your relationship to the Roman Empire? Not what's your relationship to the United States government, what's your relationship to the Roman Empire? And so it's just phenomenal how he lays this out. And so what we want to do is, <coughs> excuse me, we want to look, what are the transcultural principles here? Because some of what he's saying is very specific to the rest of the Roman Empire. So we have, okay, what's the principle there? And I, think, I don't think it's hard to do that. But it's Christians need to, even today in 2022, Christians need to understand this and understand the stewardship responsibilities each one has. And when one tries to inch in and take the stewardship, it's not going to work very well. For, for about a thousand years, the church was inextricably linked to the state in what's called the medieval civilization. But the church and state worked together. And the state was taxing people to support the church. And the church was raising armies. The church was fighting. During the medieval period, the pope was leading leading his army into battle, take more territory. He's saying, what? You don't see Jesus instructing the church to do that. That's not in the New Testament. And so it created an enormous problem. One of the reasons it was a reformation. Because God wanted the church to get back to what it was supposed to be doing. And the brilliance of our founders of the nation in the Constitution they wrote in 1787 was that they wanted to make sure that these two were kept separate. The state is not to establish First Amendment. Congress should make all respecting the establishment of religion. We will not have a state church in America. Semicolon. To prohibit the free exercise thereof. Freedom to worship the way you want to worship. The state will protect that right. Again, that, that, that's the brilliance of what happened in the summer of 1787. And so you, 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 they understood this. The founders understood this. And they wanted to protect these two spiritual responsibilities. And so what I want to do, um, well, I'm glad I got this done, because I want to do it next week, because I'm not going to write all this on the board. But we're going to be focusing on this. I'm going to try to stay away from these two, because that's not the point of chapter 13. But I want to look at what does all this mean for us. And, and we will undoubtedly conclude, this isn't working very well in 2022. As a matter of fact, you look throughout a lot of history, you don't see this working very well. That's because of the human goodness, that's because of sin. But that doesn't mean we don't try to understand this and make sure we understand what are the stewardship responsibilities. Because if we want things to work the way God wants them to work, we have to follow this. And if we don't follow the way God wants them to work, we don't expect it to work very well. And so that's kind of the bottom line. All right, so are you with me on that? Okay. Now, guys, I'm sorry, you guys, you guys were on. Well, I stepped on paper, and paper doesn't have good traction. <clears throat> but I wanted you to walk through how the Bible depicts the institutional stewardship structure. God created these, and he makes it very clear how they're supposed to function. And if they don't function very well, let's not expect things to work well. It's sort of that simple. All right, so I'll set you up for next week. Guys, uh, Fred, a couple guys took pictures. So, Glenn, you'll be getting this. But you heard what I said, didn't you?
Yep. All you guys online. Did everybody hear what I was saying there? We did. Okay. I'm going to assume that Glenn speaks for the whole group. So I'm going to, but it's, it's, I'm going to have to quit. So next week we'll dig into the, the important truths that Paul is teaching us in Romans chapter 13, um, verses one through seven. But then he has some comments in eight through 13. How do we then relate to the law? And we'll be dealing with so chapter 13 is a very important chapter. And I hope you'll be back for that. All right. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to let you go, okay? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, your Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write those verses 9 through 21 of chapter uh, 12. They are some of the most convicting passages I find in Scripture because he's laying out the virtues of Christian life. And Lord, they're hard. The, almost every single one of them is not our default response as humans. We arch our backs and we want to defend. We want to be defensive. We, we want to exhibit often arrogance and pride instead of the humility and dependence on you. But this is part of the transformation that's so central to sanctification. You are transforming into the image of your son. And this is what the goal looks like. None of us are here yet. None of us exhibit these imperfections. But Jesus did. He showed us what it looks like. So help us to be the men that you're calling us to be in these verses. These virtues, those 12 virtues relating to believers, and the love and the mercy and forgiveness, not vengeance. Help us to, as much as it's up to us, to live peaceably with other people who are unbelievers. Help us to be the kind and, and, and merciful people you call us to be. And I pray for myself in that. I pray for every man in this. We want to be men of faith who represent you well. So I commit each guy here in the room as well as those online. We thank you for them. We ask you to continue your, your work in each one of our lives as we're becoming more and more like Jesus. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.